I'm Rob Smith, and you're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Coming up on today's supersized episode... Uniforms carry a lot of symbolic weight, and turning that uniform into a piece of art, I think, does it more justice than abandoning them the way that most veterans do. We'll hear how one program is building community through repurposed military uniforms. That's one of the projects of veteran-led organization Frontline Arts. Then... When I first uh, got involved in IVW or joined, you know, I'd seen some of the actions they did, and I was like, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know, that's maybe some hippie shit. I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I have since uh, checked myself around some of those assumptions because hardly anything we've done is hippie. But... I'll chat with two members of About Face, Veterans Against the War, about their efforts to address the military industrial complex. Plus, we'll hear thoughts on a recent and somewhat divisive holiday. That's all coming up on today's episode. Stay tuned. First, we'll hear from Dave Keefe and Eli Wright of Frontline Arts. Frontline Arts are no stranger to the Interference Archive community. In the summer of 2016, through their program Combat Paper New Jersey, now known as Frontline Paper, they hosted a screen printing and paper making workshop. All right, so my name is Eli Wright. I'm a U.S. Army veteran. I served as a combat medic. My name is David Keefe. I served in the Marines. I was in the infantry for eight years, and I served in Iraq from 2006 to 2007 as a combat infantry. Combat Paper Project grew out of the organization Iraq Veterans Against the War as a way for anti-war vets to explore the artistic side of activism. Four years after Combat Paper Project began, Dave and Eli formed Combat Paper NJ after meeting at a local printmaking workshop. Dave picks up the story from there. In 2011, in the summer, I was invited to the print center to meet Eli, and Eli showed me how to cut up uniforms and make paper out of them. And it was life-altering. It was totally transforming right in the moment. I had not told my stories since I came back from Iraq in 2007, any experiences really, uh, publicly, uh, until that day. And it was so life-changing that he and I bonded quickly in that day, and we, we decided, hey, let's make this a project in New Jersey. Let's continue it on the East Coast, because combat paper as a whole, as a project, a national entity, was being run out of San Francisco. And so we said, let's make it on New Jersey. Let's make it an East Coast thing. And so we did. We built Combat Paper NJ. So, um, And the NJ is because we were housed and headquartered and you know, based in New Jersey, but we ran all the way up and down the East Coast. I mean, from Maine all the way down to, I think the furthest we went is Kentucky. Um, we're talking to people in Florida, but um, not that far yet. Next, Eli walks me through the process. The premise of the project is really about gathering veterans and service members and sometimes community members together around a communal space where we deconstruct military uniforms. So we take them apart piece by piece, button by button, zippers, patches, everything comes apart. What happens during that deconstruction process organically is that folks will start telling stories. Our gripes, our complaints, our triumphs, our history, our stories, our experiences, everything just kind of naturally starts coming out when you're engaging in this process of taking the uniforms apart. From there, the uniform scraps are run through a machine that uses water, pressure, and time to mash them into a wet pulp. The pulp is then strained, pressed, and dried into usable sheets of paper. So then from there, it becomes a platform for every individual to tell their own story through their own words and their own images, through bookbinding or creative writing, 
any type of uh, visual art media. So folks use it for painting, drawing, printmaking is what we do mostly. And some folks even use it in three dimensions as a sculptural medium. And we just assist them in that process by providing the tools and the, and the techniques and just kind of help walk them through that. I asked Eli if there were any regulations against the repurposing of uniforms. No, there are not because whatever a service member gets out with is theirs to keep and do with as they please. Um, Because we actually buy our own uniforms in the military. There are some regulations on what veterans can and cannot do with their uniforms upon getting out, but it's kind of one of those, it's a regulation that can't be enforced because The Uniform Code of Military Justice only applies to members of the military. So once you're out of the military, you're not subject to the rules that say what you can and can't do with the uniform. So it's kind of a weird loophole within that. But it's it's not something that we worry about as far as regulations go, because every individual service member who comes through the workshop donates their uniforms for the express purpose of deconstructing them and turning them into paper. So sometimes here and there we've caught in flack from uninformed uh, members of the public who think that we're desecrating the uniforms or somehow, uh, you know, stealing them or unlawfully acquiring them from the military, but we've had really no shortage of them. When folks get out of the military, most of us often have about a duffel bag's worth of uniforms. And anybody who's served in the military often knows that that big bag of uniforms either ends up in the garbage or a bonfire or collecting dust in an attic or a basement. Really, I think what we're doing is honoring the uniforms in a way that does them more justice than collecting dust in a basement because those uniforms carry a lot of symbolic weight. And turning that uniform into a piece of art, I think, does it more justice than abandoning them the way that most veterans do. Using their mobile equipment, Dave and Eli took their act on the road, setting up four- to five-day workshops at universities and military medical hospitals up and down the East Coast. Over the course of a week-long workshop, veterans and service members could create paper, make art, exhibit it, and share their stories. While this brought them national recognition, in time they noticed an important voice absent from the conversation. Dave fills us in on this missing piece. In the very beginning, we marketed this as you know, for veterans run by veterans. And so it was veterans only, you know, veterans only in the workshops on the Sunday studio. And then after the four or five day workshop, that last day, that Friday night exhibition performance, that's when the non-veteran would be, you know, invited to come in and see the work made. And that's, that was where we would speak to it and say, you know, the ultimate goal of this, of what we're doing is to um, challenge this idea of the silent veteran veterans that come home and don't speak. They don't tell their stories. We want to challenge that by bringing those veterans into a public space. They're telling their stories for the goal of connecting with the non-veterans. So non-veterans can hear the stories, the real stories coming from veterans themselves. And that was, that was in addition to the transformation the veterans go through in the workshop. That was in addition to veterans getting their stories out for the first time after 50 years, you know, being in Vietnam and not telling their stories until they cut up their uniform. I mean, the, the personal transformation is profound in itself. Uh, the ultimate goal here is to communicate and to build a community and, and make a better world because of it. Not necessarily an individual healing. We never talked about that. We never said this is art therapy. This is a collective movement to make a difference. But, but as we move forward, I realized how important the non-veteran story is in all of this. You know, their perspective, their experience, 
And so we started running workshops that were specifically for veterans and non-veterans to come together in the same space and make paper together. And that really became powerful. It's, it's great to see how a non-veteran really wants to hear these stories. They really want to connect. And they, they come out, they show up, they come to our workshops, they get requests, you know, when's your next combat paper workshop down in Trenton, you know, New Jersey, I want to go hang out and, and make paper with the veterans. I want to tell them about my experiences. And, and so there's a real desire for the non-veteran to connect. And that's in a, on an individual sense, that's like, it's great because the veterans can know and understand and feel that the society wants to hear their stories and society wants to welcome them into the, into their community, into open arms here, you know, after coming home from being abroad, but also collectively on a whole, it's like, that's the ultimate goal. We're all trying to push this whole community forward. We're, we're trying to push society forward in progress, right? We want to understand, we want to understand, you know, what are the terrible things that veterans see and go through and you know, are forced to do or how they feel betrayed by the government or how they feel betrayed by, you know, family or whatever it may be, you know, like those are the feelings that we need to all hear and understand so that we can make better decisions about going to war in the first place. Eli echoed similar sentiments papermaking, it's one of the most approachable and I think democratic crafts that one can engage in because we're all intimately familiar with paper in one form or another. It's ubiquitous in all of our lives. And so my mission these days lately is really utilizing the tools of the letterpress and the paper mill as a means of peacemaking and, you know, addressing the military industrial complex and the inequalities of of uh, neoliberal <laughs> capitalism, you know, I mean, I see it as, as a revolutionary craft. In 2015, the team behind Combat Paper New Jersey formed Frontline Arts. This new nonprofit provides guidance and support to other art groups that use craft to connect communities. So Frontline Arts is, is uh, formed to support veterans and other marginalized communities to provide resources and tools space, exhibition opportunities, technical assistance, all of, you know, sort of a comprehensive hub of activity where uh, artists can go to, to seek out support for various projects. There's just a bunch of projects that look to us for support, for resources, for 501c3 opportunities, um, grant writing, development, things like that. And we've, we've become kind of like a fiscal sponsor for some of these projects. In 2017, Frontline Arts took over what was previously the Printmaking Center of New Jersey an institution with a 40-year legacy of using craft to build community. Frontline Arts is proving to be a worthy torchbearer of the tradition, creating an even wider audience around this artistic movement. The community has really banded around what we do. And we already, so now we have veteran participants that um, call themselves either combat paper artists or, you know, they, they, um, they say that the, their time at combat paper workshop is what propelled their career and opened, opened up new 501c3s and new organizations from Pennsylvania to New York City, Google, Kentucky, DC. And one of the biggest ones that we have is up in Maine at the Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. Um, very prestigious craft school, and we've been able to create this veteran craft art week. And now they're they're inviting veteran artists from around the country to participate and learn craft in various studios. And I think I think what I'm trying to get at is I was surprised at how we could just do the work, be honest and genuine about what we're doing, 
and just telling stories. Basically, you know, I'm a veteran. I want to tell my story. And you're a veteran. I want to hear your story. And then let's, you know, make a witness out of the non-veterans. And there's just that basic just desire to connect. It feels like we did, we're doing some good work here. And the community attests to that. Now we'll hear from members of About Face, Veterans Against the War. The organization recently changed its name from Iraq Veterans Against the War. The two names are used interchangeably throughout the conversation. I sat down with two New York City-based members to discuss their experiences with the organization. My name's Claude Copeland. I was active U.S. Army for uh, 2001 to 2005, and then U.S. Reserves from 2005 to 2008. When I was uh, active duty, I was in the 102nd Military Intelligence Battalion, and then in Germany, I was in the 501st Military Intelligence Battalion. My name is Matt Howard. I served in the Marine Corps from 2001 to 2006, active duty, and I was a helicopter mechanic. I served in uh, a number of different Marine Aviation Logistics Squadrons, which are basically units that support helicopter squadrons. We're uh, an organization of veterans that have served since 9-11, and specifically folks that have been part of the War on Terror, uh, as they call it. What brings us all together is a shared uh, analysis that militarism is making our country, our planet worse, basically, and that it's something that we have to kind of transform our society out of, or we may not make it. I got introduced to Iraq Veterans Against the War through a, a sister group that came out of IVAW, um, Warrior Riders. It was a, it is a space where veterans can kind of discuss their own experiences through artistic writing. They also provide other kind of ways to uh, deal with trauma, like they gave a course on this thing called trauma releasing exercises, which was really dope. I had started in New York City with a, a small group, and you know, just hearing like the shared language around, you know, feeling internal guilt around being part of the military and at times in deployment and wanting to, to be part of something to change that. And folks who were in the War Riders group were members of Iraq Veterans Against the War, uh, found out that the office was here in the city. Um, and Matt was like the first person I had like that conversation about what Iraq Veterans Against the War was or is and what they're working towards. How long have you been uh, with face four years what's come from it on a personal level well for myself it's really just uh actually claiming the identity of being a veteran it was very difficult for a number of years being in the organization and connecting with other folks it not only felt good to like do that in a group but it even allowed me to look internally to myself other folks sharing about like what's worked for them groups like Warrior Riders that we've worked with and like even older veteran groups like Veterans for Peace and hearing how they've worked towards what has helped them to heal so that they can be active in their own lives and like around this movement is, yeah, it just changed my life. Matt, how did you get involved? I got involved through a friend that I had served with in Iraq, actually. We were both on guard duty out there guarding uh, Iraqi laborers who were coming on base to do various manual labor and um, had an opportunity to bounce off of this person released kind of concerns about like what we we're up to and later a number of years later after I had got out of the military 
this member introduced me to IBAW and said like, look, basically there's an organization of folks that feel the same way we do about the wars. So I joined soon after a march that folks were doing around 2008, uh, which is like right around when Winter Soldier happened, which is a big event for the organization. And then got really kind of down the rabbit hole in the Bay Area probably around 2011. Winter Soldier was a 2008 recreation of a controversial project that took place during the 70s. Like the Vietnam vets before them, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans delivered testimonials that shared the unvarnished truth of the kinds of acts and atrocities service members were committing in the name of their country. The coverage of the 2008 event resulted in a massive expansion of the organization almost overnight. You know, when I started to get really involved with IBEW, I was just kind of like at an inflection point in my life. And, you know, a good friend of mine that I had served with in the Marines, I had just been at his wedding. A month later, he deployed to Afghanistan. A month after that, he was shot in a, a blue on green incident, which is when they're training somebody like an Afghan police person, and then they turn on the folks training them. So he survived, fortunately, um, but it also just was uh, just a reminder. You know, I got to put my money where my mouth was. I basically went down the, the rabbit hole with IBW and you know, in a lot of ways, it's become my political home. I know that's not always the case for all, all of our folks. I know Claude had been involved in organizing work before that. And, you know, we've got folks that were doing mass incarceration organizing or they were involved in the social movements and somehow, but then they've found us. My experience was not like that. I, you know, to be honest, when I first, <laughs> when I first uh, got involved in IBAW or joined, you know, I'd seen some of the actions they did, and I was like, yeah, that's kind of, I don't know, that's maybe some hippie shit. I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> I have since uh, checked myself around some of those assumptions because hardly anything we've done is hippie. But I think in a lot of ways, uh, being in the community and both uh, being with civilian allies who have done a lot have been real patient to work with us and to, to give us space to like really kind of explore some stuff. And also, you know, to be in community with other veterans that have been thinking about this for a long time and in the work and, and are really committed to, to the struggle, I think uh, has been an opportunity for me to kind of like really invest my life in the things that matter to me. I think something that's maybe unique about our community in this kind of work is that a lot of our folks, you know, the, like veterans are often are considered like, well, they're the domain of the right. You know, that they are automatically conservative, they automatically have a particular political mindset. And even in the military, that's not true, but that there's, that's like the baseline assumption, right? And it's also true that a bunch of our folks have had gone from either like pretty centrist to, you know, to like more of a, a systemic analysis of the world and an analysis of like how war and militarism and imperialism shows up. There's some folks from like the right wing that felt like everything what we were doing, myself included, was like the noble right thing to do. And it took being inside of the like workings of the machines to be like, whoa, this is actually not anything of what the like Top Gun fantasy, whatever kind of <laughs> recruiting propaganda bullshit we got fed at that point. The work of About Face has taken its members to several high-profile and high-attention locations, including El Paso at the U.S.-Mexico border, Standing Rock, and Charlottesville. I asked Claude and Matt to talk more about the About Face initiatives, past and present. 
you know, during Standing Rock, um, we help like coordinate for veterans to be able to get out there and like support with other allies. We had from a group that we're a part of, a Grassroots Global Justice, and Mac can speak to more of the Standing Rock. Um, there were a couple of us from New York that went up there. We drove up, and it was a long drive. It was a long drive, <laughs> and you know there was a there was this sense when we were kind of cresting the hill to come into the camp at night, like it just feeling really shook because it looked just like a Ford operating base. Mm. Um, not the camp necessarily itself, even though there were a lot of military tents being repurposed, which was kind of like an awesome, um, you know, like contradiction that we're using the military against itself. Um, but just like all of the stuff that DAPL had built up and you know, the, the police, the National Guard, it just like you know, helicopters buzzing overhead and spotlights and concertina wire and, you know, MRAPs, big armored vehicles. It just was like a reminder that, you know, smaller versions of that exist in places across the country, but especially where there's like really strong resistance, like this is maybe the new normal, right? Right now, we're currently looking at a campaign, Drop the Military Industrial Complex, or Drop the Mic. And we're formulating like the best way to like have that as a national campaign. Around some of the Drop the Mic stuff, more recently, that's, it's been, there's been a tour across the country, and so different regions have kind of put on their own opportunity to just talk, talk about what does militarism look like in their community with other groups that may use that language or not, but are doing that work, right? You know, obviously the borders is incredibly militarized. Uh, there are a lot of communities in our country that are really super militarized. Just also for us, I think this uh, this desire to like really bring uh, the, uh, the connection between the militarism and violence that's done in our name overseas and the way that that's also happening at home and how connected those are, right? Because that's not always a conversation in our movements. Um, you know, in some ways that makes sense because, you know, the fact that everyone's really under attack under this administration, but also like um, it feels, I think, important for us and, and a number of folks and allies that we know to like also think about well, what does it mean to like connect those things and struggle on like like different fronts. So part of that has been drop the mic. Part of the ongoing kind of work that we've done around some of the community defense in terms of supporting communities and organizations that we're in relationship with that have asked us to to support them as they've been targeted by you know, the Klan or neo-Nazis of the kind of alt-right, which is just fascist, I think we should probably just call a spade a spade. Next, they discuss future plans for the organization. Recently, like uh, for About Face, uh, IVAW, having a, a really active People of Color caucus and wanting to see how we can show up to add influence in the group. Um, just saying on my own for like black veterans, like just seeing that there aren't as many black veterans involved in veterans group and wanting to see how we can be a space that other people of color veterans want to enter into and showing up at these spaces more often, getting over the idea that veterans groups are only, you know, white men. And yeah, just still like constantly learning, understanding that veteran activists at in various points, whether it's like in the civil rights movement, LGBTQ have been able to um, take part, but also help to shape those movements as well. And I think hopefully that learning can like help us like see how we can move forward and hopefully whatever movement's being created now with, you know, our situation with uh, 45 and other things, even locally here in the city, um, how we can um, 
be part of that and like um, be of impact. Lastly, I think the one thing that we've been like working more around and, and talking to different groups about is just like thinking about this moment, you know, what happens if this investigation into Trump and his administration goes into high gear, it is not, um, there's plenty of historical precedent for presidents that have a fire under their ass to then, you know, engage in military operations to ramp the jingoism up and, you know, basically have everyone fall in line. And it doesn't seem like this administration is afraid of that. The fact that there are so many former generals in the cabinet, I think, is a reason that we should all be scared for. Um, and I heard Naomi Klein say recently, for good reason, that it is frightening that Trump is somehow normalizing these generals as being the most reasonable people in the room. And so, and I just thinking about how, uh, you know, as a broader movement, we can respond to that and be ready for that with folks who are most impacted and marginalized by militarism, both folks inside of the US, folks part of diaspora communities that have been impacted by war, and then folks overseas can be leading that work. And so that's that's in progress, and hopefully there'll be more to, more to say about that uh, sooner rather than later. And finally, as I was recording these chats around Veterans Day, I asked Eli, Dave, Claude, and Matt for their own personal thoughts about the holiday. Here are their responses. Personally, one of the ways that I have addressed Veterans Day, and many of us within this uh, movement and community have been doing the same, is that we actually push back on institutions and organizations who only want to focus on our work during those holidays. And we use that as an opportunity to educate them about more of the real issues that veterans are facing. You ask any veteran and they'll tell you that every day is Memorial Day. If you ask a lot of veterans what Veterans Day means to them, most of us, at least within this community, certainly have a very complicated relationship with Veterans Day because it does feel like that one token holiday when people pat us on the back and thank us for our service. And then most of the day is actually punctuated by big sales at the car dealerships or the furniture, big box stores or whatever, right? So we all know about the Veterans Day sales and all of that. But um, I think we have largely lost touch with what that day actually means. And the history of Veterans Day is actually based on Armistice Day. It was a day to celebrate the end of war. It was a day to educate people about the horrific costs of war. And it was a day to, to really pursue and build peace. So Veterans Day is actually a very recent holiday. It, was only, it only came around back in the, I want to say, the 50s. It was the post-World War II era. They completely changed the, the definition of it, the face of it, and now it has completely lost touch with what its original roots were. So many of us within this movement have stopped referring to it as Veterans Day, and we call it Armistice Day, and we utilize it as an opportunity to educate people about that issue and use it you know, to talk about ending war rather than celebrating yet another generation after generation being sent off to war. And then just briefly on a personal level, I guess, as far as what Veterans Day means to me is, uh, you know, it's, it's not a day 
I, I've always really struggled with having that pride in my service. I don't like being thanked for my service. I don't want a holiday or a parade to celebrate my service because my war was an unjust war of occupation. It was based on lies. You know, history now has <laughs> come around to acknowledging and proving the things that many of us young veterans were saying very early on in the war. And what many millions of people across the world were marching for to prevent from ever happening in the first place. So for me, Veterans Day is not a day to celebrate anything. It's a day for me to mourn, actually. And so I often use it as an opportunity to reflect on those experiences and think about the peoples whose homes and streets I occupied, to think about the innocent Iraqis killed in a war that, you know, that they had no say in and that they should not have had to experience. I would speak, I guess personally, that I have no issue with the idea of Veterans Day in the sense that it's a day to honor service or those that have signed up and volunteered for a sense of service specifically in the military. I have no problem with that idea. I do have a problem with that idea taking over what was essentially a peace, you know, a celebration of peacetime or peace after World War One. Veterans Day has become such a a day that honors only a small, very, a very small faction of the of the military. You know, those that served, quote unquote, honorably. We are forgetting all of those veterans that you know do not look like the veterans that you see on commercials or that are honored at you know baseball or football games. Or you know, there's veterans that are that have been um, discharged general other than honorably. You know, and they are not being honored the same as others are on a day like Veterans Day. I think plenty of veterans and a lot of veterans we work with feel ostracized on a day like Veterans Day. They feel, you know, it's not the day for them because it's it's been taken over by this uh, Americanized kind of media, you know, the eagle and the flag and the veteran, uh, you know, honoring military industrial complex and American colonialism and, and imperialism. When we forget that there are so many veterans out there that feel marginalized and ostracized and and disenfranchised in some way, and I wish that there was a way we could talk about them on the same day as as other veterans. So, but again, I feel like Veterans Day is. I like the idea of it. It needs to be changed. We need to talk about more veterans and the uh, comprehensive service in the military. But it also needs to be separated from Armistice Day, and I wish we could reinstate Armistice Day. I think one of the best ways we can honor veterans is to say we don't want any more wars. We don't want more veterans to continue in our history. You know, we don't want to see perpetual war. And how hopefully this can make folks want to make these connections of how militarism is appearing in pretty much our day to day, nationally and internationally, and like what steps can we do to like stop having wars and, and finding other means to resolve these conflicts and, and issues that we might have. We've joined our allies in what's called the Vets Day Parade just to provide a, a counter, um, you know, that not all vets are rah-rah and, and celebrating the fact that we're in continued war. If you want to actually mark this day in any meaningful way, then, like, it's it's actually about 
supporting movements that are organizing and struggling right now. It's not like broad nationalistic platitudes about how great America is and mm-hmm. you know how all of the sacrifices our folks have made you know in the military or, or have been worth it because I think at the end of the day, I would say all of our folks agree that those sacrifices haven't been worth it and in fact make our country a whole hell of a lot less safe than it it was or is. And that's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about Frontline Arts or About Face Veterans Against the War, check out our show notes for links to their organizations. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.